Hi everyone, thank you for joining us today. My name is Naomi Shaw. I'm the web director for the American Thoracic Society Sleep and Respiratory Neurobiology's web committee. I'm at the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai in the Division of Pulmonary Critical Care and Sleep Medicine. Today we're very excited to bring an important position paper from the American Academy of Sleep Medicine on the use of a home sleep apnea test for the diagnosis of obstructive sleep apnea in children. We are going to be joined today by one of the co-authors of this important position paper, Dr. Lynn DeAndrea, who is professor in the Department of Pediatrics and Division Chief of Pulmonary and Sleep Medicine, Medical College of Wisconsin. She's going to be interviewed by Dr. Sumit Bhargava, who's going to be moderating today's discussion. Dr. Bhargava has been a very active member of the Sleep and Respiratory Neurobiology's web committee. He leads the Pediatric Sleep Interest Group for the web committee. He's Clinical Associate Professor of Pediatrics at Stanford University Department of Pediatrics and is also the Medical Director Lucille Packard Children's Hospital Sleep Laboratory. This podcast addresses whether there is a need for home sleep testing in children. They also discuss how and why the committee came up with the position that they did after a careful review of the literature. Without further delay, Dr. Sumit Barkova. Good afternoon and welcome to the American Thoracic Society podcast uh, by the ATS Assembly on Sleep and Respiratory Neurobiology. My name is uh, Dr. Sumit Bhargava. I'm a pediatric pulmonary and sleep medicine doctor at the Lucille Packard Children's Hospital and Stanford University. And today I am hosting uh, Dr. Lynn DeAndrea, who is professor, Department of Pediatrics, and chief division of pulmonary and sleep medicine at the Medical College of Wisconsin and the Children's Hospital of Wisconsin. Dr. DeAndrea, it's truly a pleasure and a privilege to have you join us on the podcast today. And so I wanted to begin by asking you, uh, in 2020, is there a need for home sleep apnea testing in pediatrics? Thank you, and it's a pleasure to be with you um, today. Um, I was one of the authors on that position paper. Um, Just as a reminder, there were um, eight of us, eight pediatric sleep physicians from across North America, or at least the U.S. and 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 Canada. Um, I think there is a need for sleep testing in children in general. There are, if if four to five percent of adults are diagnosed with sleep apnea, one to two percent of of children have sleep apnea. And so it it is very important that there's a place for children to come in and, and be studied. I think I think the the answer is not yet well defined um, if home sleep testing is is the right way to go about that. We we have to get better at it um, before it we can we can start doing it at home for the for the. I see. Thank you. Uh, you had mentioned uh, that we need to be better at it. Could I request you to? clarify that a little bit? Is it from the point of view of the physiologic signals that need to be collected in a reliable and effective manner or something else that is unique to the pediatric population? You know, it's, it's really both. And so when, and when you look at the position paper, the committee, um, I, I think the committee did a very good job of keeping an open mind about whether this was something that we wanted to recommend for pediatrics. 
And so when they, when we first looked at the studies that were out there, the two questions were, is home sleep apnea testing in children technically feasible? Can you even do it? And if you can, are you getting valid results? Even with those two questions, the results are a little bit, um, the results are a little bit soft. So if you're talking about technical feasibility, there were, there were really four studies that were out there. The two biggest ones, um, one was done out at Tucson, it was part of a research study, and then Carol Marcus had a, a multi-center study. And in both of those studies, in all of the studies, um, to get to technical feasibility, the kids were having to have one, but sometimes two sleep studies um, at home before they, they could get information. With the Tucson study, they found, they called them technically acceptable, but they also admitted that in about half of the studies, they weren't having airflow signals for at least six hours. And so the studies are hard to do in kids. All of those studies, or three of the four studies, the, um, the studies were very labor intensive. And so even though they were done in the home, the researchers either had sleep techs or nurses who were putting the equipment on the, on the children, setting them up. There was one study that was done that we included where the equipment was placed by the caregiver. And when that happened, the studies were only um, technically acceptable in, in less than a quarter of the patients. So right there, there's some concern whether or not you can even do them. Then when we look though at the validity, um, again, there were five studies that you only started to see high sensitivities, specificities, when the children started having more severe disease. One study, you had to have an AHI greater than three before you started seeing validity. One study was an AHI greater than five. One study was actually an AHI greater than 10 before these, the home studies became valid. And even with those studies, there, there's, there's a couple little caveats. So in two of the studies, one by Jacobs and then one by Alonso Alvarez, there they did a head-to-head -head comparison. Um, the kids had a home study and they had a lab study. In the other studies though, both kinds of testing were done in the lab. So even the home study was done in the lab, but they only put the home sensors on and then they compared the toothment. You're looking at validity, you have to have um, significant disease before the home studies are gonna pick it up. And so it kind of left this idea that, you know, maybe positive is positive, but if the study is negative, it doesn't necessarily rule out that the child doesn't have sleep apnea. So I think that's the two biggest concerns. We can talk more, the study then drilled down though, you know, what specifically are we missing on the home sleep studies um, that makes them not. Thank you for clarifying. I think that was very helpful for uh, our audience to kind of understand really the context of uh, the work that, the important work that was done by your committee uh, and your colleagues in trying to draft this statement. 
I think one of the things that you had mentioned uh, as we were discussing was the, the validity of home sleep apnea testing in children. And I think it's clear that how the data is gathered is, of course, important. How the data is, is scored is, is also, I think, quite crucial to that. And I know that there are uh, certainly differences in the scoring of adult and pediatric sleep studies. Uh, could you comment on, on this particular aspect of home sleep apnea testing interpretation uh, in pediatrics, and, and what was the viewpoint of you and your colleagues uh, if that would make home sleep apnea testing uh, more difficult to implement in children? Right, and I think that was really where the pediatrician struggled. The home sleep test that the, that the child gets or that the adult gets is, is really the same thing. It's the same piece of equipment and the same sensors get put on. But you're right, it's, it's the scoring of that information that's different. So remembering that in pediatrics, an apnea hypopnea index greater than one, um, you know, that's a pretty, narrow, a pretty narrow range of what's normal versus abnormal. And if you're not scoring sleep because you don't have an EEG, to get that total sleep time to be able to calculate your apnea hypopnea index, there's probably a fair amount of variability there. The other thing we know is that um, kids tend to have more partial obstructions or probably more hypopneas than actual obstructive apneas. And so when you look at the, at the ASM and their scoring guidelines for, for children, they actually have the, the guidelines for children are different than adults. So you can either count the apneas, hypopneas to get your index, but they also make allowance for the kids who have obstructive hypoventilation. And they talk about how if you see or you hear snoring, you have paradoxic respiratory efforts, you see a flattening of your inspiratory pressure. You can count your apneas and hypopneas. If they have hypopneas, you can see a desaturation, but the scoring guidelines also let you count with an arousal because kids tend to have relatively healthy lungs, and so they may not desaturate. You may not see those 3 or 4% desaturations, but you will see an arousal. So in the home studies, if you don't have the EEG, you're not. The other thing that the kids do is they have the obstructive hypoventilation, and so they've got the snoring, the paradoxic respiratory efforts, and then you can see um, elevated end tidal CO2 values. The other thing that's not available on the home sleep apnea testing is end tidal CO2 monitoring. And so the concern is that you'd miss the kids who have the obstructive hypoventilation. So those are the big differences between the PEDS and the adult scoring. Hypopneas can be scored with, the, with, with a desaturation, but also an arousal. And then you can also use end-tidal CO2 monitoring for hypo. Great, thank you. That was a very effective summary of the important differences um, between uh, adult and pediatric sleep studies. I think one of the things that you had mentioned earlier in our conversation was that the devices that are actually used uh, for pediatric home sleep apnea testing are essentially the same devices that are used for adult home sleep apnea testing. Um, is there a particular device characteristic that you think would make it more relevant uh, for pediatric sleep studies as 
uh, in comparison to uh, adult home sleep apnea testing? You know, I think you'd probably have to find a way to be able to, to put in EEG monitoring. Um, you know, we can talk about the CO2 and, and whether or not maybe there are certain um, groups of kids where if you're not as worried about hypoventilation that maybe that's the one signal that there could be some carve-outs for, but it's, it's really the EEG that probably needs to somehow become part of home sleep apnea testing if it's, if it's going to be usable and, and valid in kids. These home systems, you can put EEGs in. It just becomes a different process then, right, because then the child has to come to the, the hospital or has to come to the sleep lab. The tech has to put those EEG leads on. So it's not as simple as just, you know, coming to pick up the equipment and, and then going back home and the family sets them up. One of the things that um, the paper had mentioned, uh, especially in the part where you were talking about future direction, development of a diagnostic algorithm uh, to predict the best candidates for a pediatric home sleep apnea test, uh, because it was felt that that would significantly improve the reliability of the devices and reduce the burden of false results in inappropriate candidates. Could you comment on that a little bit, just so that our audience can understand uh, this important point a little better? You know, I think we, we know that in pediatrics, we see a wide, a wide variety of kids. We follow, we see kids from the newborn period up to 18 years of age. And so I think if you were going to do an algorithm, the question would be, are there certain age groups? There are no studies in, in younger children. People have asked about the older teenagers. Is there a difference between, you know, a 17-year-old and a 21-year-old? And so, so maybe that's a group of, of people to look at. The other question is in, in a child who's an otherwise healthy child, versus, you know, a special needs child? And, and are there differences there in how you would do the sleep studies? So I think that was sort of what the committee was thinking, that you'd have to look at these different, you know, you'd have to look at these different groups and, and, and really put it to the test, though, head-to-head -head comparisons of home sleep studies versus the, the in-lab studies. The only study out there looking at special needs kids was, was the Carol Marcus study, those kids were older, but they had a history of prematurity. But other than that, no one is, has really looked at the special needs population. I mean, even kids with trisomy 21, right? That's a big group of kids that we see in our lab and how, you know, how feasible those studies would be at home. So I don't know. I think, I think the teenagers are, are maybe the group to, to look at. Right now in the committee did the, did the paper, we looked at kids from newborns to 18, and, and there were no studies out there on teenagers, but but that may be a future, a future direction. Thank you very much. I wanted to touch a little bit on one of the comments that was made in the paper, which would be on the effect of home sleep apnea testing on treatment assessment and patient important outcomes, because I thought that was a very important future direction that was defined in your paper. Would you mind expanding on that a little bit so that we can understand the relevance specifically in the pediatric population of what would be the patient important outcomes that home sleep apnea testing should help to measure? We understand that there aren't enough pediatric sleep labs to, to, to go around for everybody. 
And, and so trying to be sympathetic to that, there, there does need to be a way to get more kids through this process. You know, in kids, it's not just, it, it's a health issue. It is sort of also a behavioral issue, though. Undiagnosed sleep apnea is associated with attention deficits and hyperactivity, sleepiness. So to be honest, we knew that there needed to be follow-up. We knew that there needed to be to look at these outcomes once they had their TNAs. Did they get better? How did we know about it? But it was just hard because the, the, the diagnostic test isn't where it's supposed to be. And so then how to do the, how to do the follow-up is a little bit difficult. Very true. Thank you for uh, clarifying that. In conclusion, I just wanted to touch upon the final recommendation that the committee actually ended up making in this paper where in, in summary it was stated that data are currently insufficient to support using home sleep apnea testing for the diagnosis of OSA in children. Is there anything else that you think our audience should know uh, about why and, and how the committee ended up with this position after your very careful review of the literature? I think the public needs to know that the studies that are out there, these, were, these are really smart people who have done these studies and, and, and tried to, you know, tried to further what we, how we practice medicine. But even in these very sophisticated hands where these were sort of done as research studies, the outcomes maybe weren't as robust as you would hope. You could say, well, if I'm, I'm technically acceptable 90% of the time, maybe that's good enough. On the other hand, if you're wrong 10% of the time and you're missing 10% of the kids, is that really acceptable? Or if these studies aren't, are only valid with the, the more severe sleep apnea and you're missing all the kids with the mild disease, then is that really good enough? And so before this gets out you know, to the whole world and, and we start doing HSATs on, on every child, it's really the feeling that we need to we need to keep looking at this and people keep need to keep doing people need to do more head to head HSAT versus sleep studies, um, maybe carve out some of these different patient populations so that if we're gonna do it we, we do it properly and we're not we're not under diagnosing or, or missing kids who have important disease. You know, even if you look at the adult guidelines, they very carefully carved out people, even adults who were who not appropriate for an HSAT. I mean, they're looking for, they're only looking for adults with sleep apnea. They're not looking for adults with hypoventilation. They've taken out patients with cardiorespiratory problems, so people with COPD, neuromuscular disease. They very carefully carved out populations where HSAT isn't appropriate. And so I think in, in pediatrics, we probably need to have that same care and, and not just talk about this as something for all children. One final question that occurred to me as you were talking, I think we have the currently existing home sleep apnea testing. There are other devices that are used, such as the watch pad in adults as a way to try to diagnose them with sleep apnea in a setting outside of the sleep laboratory. Do you have a perspective or any comments to make on whether you think technologies like the watch pad are suitable for use in children or have ever been validated for that use? Boy, that's a good question, and unfortunately, no, I don't. We, we did not look at watch pad for the HSAT. 
I'm not really sure I'm aware of any big studies of that in kids. I think that's a great opportunity for someone to, to, to look at that you know, thoughtfully and carefully through a research study. Great. Well, I want to thank you once again for taking time out of your schedule to participate in this podcast. Thank you again very much. Thank you. That concludes our podcast from the American Thoracic Society Sleep and Respiratory Neurobiology. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and we look forward to seeing you on another podcast from the ATS SRN Web Committee. Until then, take care. Bye-bye.